John chapter 3, looking mainly at verses 1 uh, to 8. One uh, national survey found that about 50% of Americans, that is a roughly 150 million people plus, claim to be born-again Christians. Yet if you tell a friend that you have become a Christian, they may well turn and ask, not one of those born-again types, I hope. You see, to some people, there are ordinary Christians, and then there are those terrible born-again ones. Perhaps what comes to mind are TV evangelists with sparkling white teeth and expensive suits. Maybe for you it is the fire and brimstone preacher wagging his finger while screaming, you must be born again. Or possibly you're just tired of those mocking media reports of some poorly behaved celebrity who is supposed to have become a born-again Christian, whether Charlie Sheen or Britney Spears or Jessica Simpson. So many in the church would rather do away with this phrase, born-again, altogether. But the phrase, born-again, only comes in chapter 3 of John's Gospel, and while Jesus is having a private conversation with a religious, respectable Jewish man by the name of Nicodemus. In verse 1 of John chapter 3, we read these words. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, because no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Born or born again language is used in almost every verse from verses 3 to 8 of John chapter 3. Yet we have no record of Jesus ever using this language in his public preaching of the word of God. Nor do we have it recorded anywhere in the Bible that the early Christians explained the message of the Bible specifically in terms of the need to be born again. Now, I'm not saying that being born again is not important because Jesus clearly says otherwise in the passage I just read to you from John's Gospel. What I'm saying is that there are other terms or expressions the Bible uses more often to describe what it means to be a Christian. Even the word Christian itself is only used three times in the entire Bible. And even then, it was probably used either as a nickname or as a, a, a term of abuse by those outside the church to describe those inside the church. The early Christians preferred, referred to themselves as disciples, saints, brothers, believers, to name just a few ways that they describe themselves. And yet there is a sense in which none of these descriptions, as useful, as helpful as they are, get to the heart of the matter. You see, a true follower of Jesus Christ is someone who has been fundamentally and radically changed by God the Holy Spirit. Their life has been radically taken over transformed, overwhelmed even, by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He has come and taken possession of them, living inside them, while changing them from the inside out. 
And so rather than using uh, the words born again, the New Testament uses uh, words or phrases like renewal or new creation or being made alive again or regeneration or transformation. Fundamentally, a Christian is someone who has been baptized, plunged, or immersed in God the Holy Spirit. That is mainly what stands behind the phrase born again in today's passage. We need then to work out what this phrase really means if we are to properly understand the role of God the Holy Spirit. And if we, can, if we are to assess whether this phrase, born again, is worth holding on to. So I want to start by introducing you to this man, Nicodemus, from John chapter 3. This man, Nicodemus, was clearly very interested in Jesus because, verse 2, he comes to see Jesus late one night. Now, if you read John's Gospel in chapter 1, you will see that God raised up a man called John the Baptist to point the people of his day to the arrival of God's appointed, God's anointed king or Messiah, that is, Jesus Christ. So John baptized those who wanted to turn away from their wrongdoing while turning towards God And so he baptized them in the River Jordan, in chapter 1 of John's Gospel. Now, the strict religious sect that Nicodemus belonged to did not believe in John or anything that John the Baptist stood for. So Nicodemus, like many of the other Pharisees of his day, had not and would not allow themselves to be baptized by John in the River Jordan. And you can read about that in Luke 7, verse 30. Jesus, however was harder to dismiss, because unlike John the Baptist, Jesus performed miraculous signs. So in verse 2 of our passage, John chapter 3, despite being a highly educated, aristocratic ruler, a man of moral standing, and with an almost fanatical religious commitment, verse 1, Nicodemus, on the one hand, flatters Jesus, while on the other hand, he takes a swipe at John the Baptist in verse 2. Rabbi, we, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God because no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. You see, me and my elite colleagues in the Jewish High Council, we couldn't possibly take John seriously, but we have to take you seriously, Jesus, because, well, your miracles make it difficult for us to ignore you like we could ignore John the Baptist. Of course, that's a little bit like a year six pupil saying to Albert Einstein, you know, your algebra is not that bad. (laughs) You see, Jesus can see that Nicodemus needs to be brought down a peg or two. Now, some people think that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, verse two, because he did not want any of his colleagues to know of his interest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Although possible, I think John chapter 13 and verse 30 gives us the biggest clue as to why John tells us that Nicodemus spoke to Jesus while surrounded by darkness. Flip over a few pages to John 13 and verse 30. 
page 1081. It's only one verse, but it's worth you seeing it in black and white for yourself. This is what John tells us in chapter 13, verse 30. As soon as, Nick, as, soon as Judas had taken the bread, like some of us were doing earlier on, he went out, i.e. to betray Jesus, and it was night. I think John is telling us that despite his respectability, morality, and religious commitment, John 3 verse 1, despite probably being the most senior Pharisee and teacher in Israel, John 3 verse 10, Nicodemus, like Judas, the man who later would betray Jesus, approached Jesus in darkness because his own night was much, much darker than he himself knew. In the words of one writer, Nicodemus not only met Jesus by night, but when he did so, he was in a very real sense a man living in darkness. See, for a start, he didn't appreciate that rejecting John the Baptist was essentially the same thing as rejecting Jesus himself. See, my problem, your problem, and Nicodemus's problem, is clearly stated for us in verse 19 of John chapter 3. And it's this. Light has come into the world, Jesus, but like little cockroaches... People like me, people like you, and Nicodemus prefer the darkness. We shy away from coming into the light, lest the light expose us for who we really are. This is so much the case, and this bit's important, so listen up. This is so much the case for me, for you, for everyone, but it takes a power outside of ourselves to bring each and every one of us out and into the light. And unless you understand that, you will never come to terms with what it means to be a Christian. And so that brings us uh, to our little phrase, born again, in verse 3. It, it brings us to this idea of why you and I must be born again. Jesus replied, verse 3, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Verse 4, how can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, Nicodemus, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless you are born of water and the Spirit. Notice, if you compare verse 3 to verse 5, seeing the kingdom of God and entering it are just two ways of saying exactly the same thing. No one, says Jesus, can experience the kingdom of God unless he or she is born again. Jesus humbles this great man, Nicodemus. First, Nicodemus has absolutely no idea what Jesus is talking about according to verse 4. That brought him down a peg or two. And second, that means he himself, Nicodemus, must be outside of God's kingdom because absolutely no one who has not had the experience of being born again can ever enter or experience the kingdom of God. 
In verse 3 and verse 5, Jesus is talking about the rule of God over my life and your life. The reign of God. And as a Pharisee, Nicodemus would have eagerly been expecting God's kingdom to come. And he would have naturally assumed that he himself would be included in that kingdom when it did come. In the words of yet another writer, after all, he was strict in his obedience, pious in his religion, and conservative in his theology. Surely he was, was on God's side already. Surely. Well, Jesus says, no. As he rips the heart out of his presumption. The presumption of this man, Nicodemus. No, Nicodemus, to be on God's side, you must be born again. No one, not even you, Nicodemus, Israel's chief rabbi or main theologian, can know the kingdom of God without being born again. There are no exceptions. So what does it mean to be born again? Surely it cannot mean, verse 4, entering the womb of your mother from which you came a second time. Surely not. Uh, notice in verse 5 that Jesus adds to what he's already said in verse 3 by saying, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. And many scholars, theologians uh, debate what Jesus meant by the word water here in verse 5. I'll leave you to read the commentary if you want to uh, work out all those different views. For what it's worth, I think verse 5 is most likely referring to baptism. But not Christian baptism as you and I know it today. Now rather, I think Jesus is referring to the baptism of John the Baptist. Again, if you flip over to chapter 1 of John's Gospel, again, it's only one verse, but it's worth reading it in black and white. John mentions the two forms of baptism in one verse. Page 1064. And this is John speaking. And I myself did not know him, says John the Baptist, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John could only baptize people with water in preparation for Jesus, who would then baptize them with God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus brings up John's baptism here because John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was for people who had turned away from their wrongdoing while turning towards God in search of, the, of cleansing or forgiveness. And of course, this was something Nicodemus and his group of Pharisees were not willing to do. This is why I think Jesus mentions it here. Nicodemus, in other words, if you want to see, to enter the kingdom of God, you have to repent. You've got to change your mind while passing through the cleansing waters of forgiveness. Just like the followers of John have been doing. But whatever the precise meaning of the word water, the most important word in the phrase, water and the spirit, is indeed spirit. Look at verse 5. 
No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Why? Well, because flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. What I believe Jesus is saying here is that being born again, seeing or entering the kingdom of God is a miraculously mysterious experience. You and I, in our natural human state, cannot evolve or grow into the life of God's kingdom. That's impossible. We are flesh. And flesh, having come from flesh, can only give birth to flesh. The only way you can see or enter or experience the kingdom of God is for God's Holy Spirit to recreate you from the inside out. To give you a fresh start, a new life, a new birth, a new beginning. That's the only way. Only the spirit of almighty God has the power to perform in you and me this inner transformation. Such that we are enabled to make that quantum leap from this world of darkness into the world of God's kingdom of light. Some people are really into zombie movies. I doubt if I could ever get my wife to watch a zombie movie with me. She would never do it. Well, because of the rebellion in the Garden of Eden all those years ago, you and I are born naturally into this world like zombies. We are the living dead. We appear alive, but in fact we are spiritually dead. The life of God is simply not in us. We are spiritual corpses. A whole part of us is missing and we've been banished from God's kingdom as a result. And he no longer rules or reigns over our lives. And this conditional alienation from God is something we were never created for. And by the way, this is a very, very, very serious condition. Twice, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. In both verse 7 and verse 5, or verse 5 and verse 7. Let me put it another way. The deepest need people have here in the UK is not to either leave or stay in the EU. It is not to solve the problem of immigration or the NHS. It is not getting rid of our first past to post political system, etc., etc., etc. And why? Well, because none of these things can or ever will get rid of the fundamental moral perversion in each and every one of our hearts, both mine and yours. Doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, whether you're man, woman, whatever. And to be fair to Nicodemus, in verse 4, he was probably simply expressing the fact that he understood that the human personality is a near impossible thing to change. And so in verse 9, he's dumbfounded. What are you talking about, Jesus? How can this be? How can what you're saying be true? But you see, what is impossible for us is possible for Almighty God. Jesus is saying we are so messed up. You and I are so messed up. We're born into this world so messed up that we need God to work by his spirit in us to recreate the the spiritual part of us that has died. He has to give each of us a new beginning, a new start, a new life, and with it, new desires and aspirations at the very core, at the very center of our being. 
In short, you must be born again. Later in John's Gospel, Jesus defines the parameters of this life when he says, John 17, verse 30, verse 3, don't look it up. Now, this is eternal life, that you may know, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Life here and now is all about knowing God and being in a relationship with him in and through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what life is about here. It's not about your careers. It's not about your homes, your kids' education. No, your life here is about knowing Jesus. In other words, that which was lost in spiritual death can be regained, but only through spiritual rebirth. Essentially, it's as if you and I are a spiritual corpse lying dead beside a swimming pool. And God the Holy Spirit is, is like a lifeguard who comes from nowhere and breathes new life into us. He's like a doctor who suddenly bursts into the emergency room and brings that divine shock to that dead patient lying there in order to get the dead spiritual heart beating again. Theologians call this new birth or new life given to each and every true disciple of Jesus Christ regeneration. Because that is exactly what it is. The regeneration of life. The idea of God the Spirit recreating us is a truth repeated a number of times in the New Testament. For example, in 2 Corinthians 5, in Ephesians 2, in Titus 3. And if you look at the footnote in your Bibles at the bottom of the page, you will see that the phrase born again could be translated born from above. Uh, Jesus chose a word in the original that has both those shades of meaning. Born again, born from above. You see, becoming a believer, a Jesus disciple, a Christian, entering the kingdom of God is about, as, about a radical new beginning in life. It is about becoming a, a spiritual newborn baby. This is something which you can experience for the first time as a teenager or when you're an old age pensioner. But it can only happen from above as God the Holy Spirit comes from above and gives you this new spiritual life. And Jesus probably wanted to convey uh, both these ideas in the phrase born again. Born again, born from above. So here's the thing. Being born again is possible, but it's also very much supernatural. Let me say that again. Being born again is possible with God. But that's because it's fundamentally a supernatural thing. And crucially, just as you and I played absolutely no part in bringing about our physical birth, you wasn't even there when that happened, were you? You and I can have absolutely no part in bringing about our spiritual rebirth. The latter is a sovereign, mysterious, supernatural work of God the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 8. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. In the original language of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word for wind is exactly the same as the word for Spirit. Some years ago now, uh, when we were living in South Africa, I heard my wife, Rebecca, our lodger, Narina, and some of our kids struggling outside my study. I worked from home, both then as I do now. 
Uh, they needed help because the wind was threatening to blow our rotating washing line over. Half an hour later, the wind that mysteriously attacked and damaged our washing line was gone as suddenly as it at first appeared. None of us saw it come, none of us saw it go. Nor did we have any control over its coming or going, and yet we felt its impact quite tangibly with that damaged washing line. Jesus says, so it is with his Holy Spirit. Doctors cannot prescribe him. Politicians cannot legislate against him. Preachers like me cannot and dare not try to manipulate him. And yet, only God the Spirit can create new life in people like me and like you. And he does so according to his sovereign plan and purpose. And yet, if you or I are to see, to know, to enter the kingdom of God, if you, are, you and I are to ever experience the life of God living in our souls, then you simply must be born again. Let me close by drawing out some implications from John chapter 3. The first is this. There are not two kinds of Christians in the world, the ordinary type and the born-again type. That is nonsense. If you are not born again here today, you are not a Christian. A famous evangelist was once asked why he was always preaching on John chapter 3, that you must be born again. He replied, his reply was, because you must. Everyone must be born again. This is not an optional extra for the especially keen and committed. Please understand, the only kind of Christian in the world and in the church is a born-again type. Now, some of us may be tempted to think that Gracious Broccoli is not a very spirit-filled church. Because you, you think we don't talk about the Holy Spirit enough, perhaps. Well, church is about people. It's not about buildings. You, you do know that this building is not a church. It's just, it's just a rain shelter the church meets in. No, church is people. People who have been filled with God the Holy Spirit. So by very definition, every true church of Jesus Christ is a spirit-filled church. Now, there may be some truth in this accusation here at Gracious Broccoli, but when tempted to lay this accusation at this church, or any church for that matter, we may need to be careful that it is our definition of spirit-filled that is lacking. Hopefully this series on the person of the Holy Spirit will put us in a better position to assess that accusation. The second thing to say is that being born again means receiving new life from God the Holy Spirit. There is a reason he's called the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who sets people apart, makes them dif distinct or different. See, the rebirth he gives implies new life. You cannot have new birth without new life. I mean, a newborn baby has new birth because they're going to go on to live a new life. They always go together like hand in glove, don't they? New birth, new life. Therefore, you and I should rightly be suspicious of all those who claim to be born-again Christians, but then don't show signs of new life. 
For example, Larry Flint publications made a healthy annual profit producing pornographic videos and magazines. Flint apparently became a born-again Christian after having a vision from God while flying somewhere in his private jet. But sadly, Larry Flint continued to sell pornographic material, and today he would call himself an atheist. Now, I don't think it is being overly judgmental to say that he was probably never ever truly born again, because his life was never really transformed or overwhelmed by God the Holy Spirit. New life did not seem to follow his new birth. As a Christian, if I see someone who has professed to belong to the kingdom of God, not demonstrating new life, perhaps I should say something to that person. Rather than come out with the nonsense we always often come out with, which is, I should not judge. Yes, you should. Often that is just a cop-out. Or to put it very bluntly, it's spiritual cowardice. You should make a judgment because, biblically speaking, new life will always follow on from new birth. New birth, new life. Furthermore, I believe there are many respectable religious people in churches today, dare I say, even a church like Gracious Broccoli, who may have had their conscience pricked. The Spirit may have convicted them of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, to some degree, but they have never received new life in the Spirit. They are not born again from above or possessed by God's Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And as a result, they're not living holy lives, separate, different, distinct lives. They profess to be Christians, but then habitually engage in the acts of the flesh, according to Galatians chapter 5. And maybe that describes you here today. You've been coming to Gracious Broccoli for weeks, months, even years. You feel a little guilty and perhaps a little bit afraid when you hear the sermons, or you talk to other Christians. Well, I need to say to you in no uncertain terms... You must be born again. Because new life always comes after new birth. Notice, I did not say perfect life. There's a difference between new life and perfect life. Christians here and I don't live perfect life, but they do live new lives if they are truly born again. The third thing I need to say is that it does not matter how much money you have in the bank, how religious respectable or well-educated you are, there is absolutely nothing you can do in and of yourself to get this new life that you so desperately need and that I've been speaking about over the last few minutes. You need new life, yet you cannot produce it in yourself until you realize just how rotten to the core you are and throw away all your self-help books and your secular attempts at spirituality and realize that only God the Holy Spirit can change you, you will never experience the life of God in your soul. You need to humbly plead with God the Holy Spirit to have mercy on you and to transform your inner being. Otherwise, you will never know what it feels like to enter into God's kingdom. The fourth and the final thing I need to say to you, especially if you would call yourself a Christian here today, is that as important as all these things are, it is not 
and never has been mainly about the ability of the speaker, the quality of the publicity, the organization of the event or the logistics, the follow-up course, the pre-evangelism, etc., 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 that imparts new spiritual life, whether to your neighbors, your friends, your work colleagues, your family members, or even the most hardened and evil non-believer that you have ever met. Now, I think we often and easily forget that it is only the Spirit of God working through the Word of God that does the work of God. And so that's why, if we're Christians, we need to pray, brothers and sisters. Why we must pray. Because we can't save anyone. I've never saved anyone in my entire life. Spiritually speaking, that is. Only the Spirit of God can save people through the Word of God.